believes, though, that every perverse thing is defended. And anyone who dares to stand on any grounds of morality, virtue, and decency uh, is maligned and persecuted in every way. We are definitely living in, in, in very unstable times. <clears throat> One of the clear indications that a, a government or, or nation or kingdom is coming to its end is when the very fabric of society ceases to hold it together. And that has always been based on the rules of ethics and morality. Now, you can base your ethics and morality on various things. Obviously, to the Christian, the only basis upon which we determine the concept of morality is God and his word. Everything outside of that is uh, not into consideration. But in civilized societies throughout the history of mankind, uh, they've always based society on some firm position of ethics and morality. Never in a society has there ever been a time when, for example, mankind has sanctioned the approval of blatant murder. Just go out and just kill somebody. Just play, And said, okay, well, that's all right. We don't care. That's fine. That's never been acceptable. Um, but uh, there are variations of acceptance within the concept of morality throughout the history of mankind. Then when you find the very fabric of, man, uh, of society vanishing, there's nothing left holding it together. What will come uh, is, is exactly what happened in France in the late 18th century, the French Revolution. You will have absolute chaos because fundamentally when a society reaches an, what is considered amoral, and what that really kind of means is, well, what's right in your eyes is not right in my eyes. And what's right in my eyes may not be right for you. Everybody is determining what they consider to be a moral position. In other words, it's not a uniformity. It's now, it's whatever you think is right in your own eyes. And, uh, and, um, and we, are, we are there um, in so many levels. And uh, I'm telling you, dear friends, um, I've been trying for the last two years, especially preaching to people to wake up um, and we are in very serious times. We talked about the with a little bit of the Ukraine situation. Sad, sad situation. And um, but um, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you other than you better get ready. Amen. And because uh, this is not a joke. You know, Jesus told us these things would come. It's a very interesting statement the servant Lord makes. She says, uh, "When the crisis breaks." She says, there will be those in the church who will say, well, we knew it was coming, but we didn't think it would come this, this soon. That means that it caught them unprepared. What's interesting, though, we knew it was coming, but we didn't think it would come that soon, which means these people were fully aware of the issues, but they procrastinated. See, that's what happened to the five foolish virgins. See, it says they all slept. Not the five foolish slept. They all slept. Then there was a midnight cry, an awakening cry. You see? Wake up. Wake up. And uh, prepare to meet your God. And then they began to realize as they began to take an account of their lives, spiritually speaking, uh, where they stood with God. And I'm afraid, dear friends, that uh, many of those who claim to be Christians aren't really Christians at all. Um, many are called, but few are chosen, which means the gospel invitation goes to everyone, but few will choose to accept that invitation. Jesus said, when I come back, shall I find faith on this earth? That's a rhetorical question. He knew the answer. He was asking you to consider what, what the odds are. And you've got to realize, dear friends, there's not many people going to believe in God at the end. And uh, Jesus even said, are there few to be saved? Again, a rhetorical question. He didn't need the answer. He already knew the answer. The question is very obvious. No, there's not going to be many. You know, people say to me, Brother Ray, sometimes you're depressing. You know, sometimes, dear friends, when you are faced with a crisis of the magnitude of which we are, um, you better 
start focusing in on the things that are essential. And sometimes, in my position, I got to tell you the truth, whether you like it or not. Amen. I remember, I'm not here to pamper your, your insecurities. Um, I don't work for you. I'm not a politician, so I'm not looking for your vote. So I don't have to parade uh, some fake facade, you see, and act like I'm something in one way. We are facing a crisis. I want to talk to you today about this very thing, on how really to get encouraged and strengthened in this time. We're going to look at Psalm 46, 47, and 48. Um, not right now. Hang on. We're, come, we're getting there. We're getting there. But I want to start it off with some statements from the pen of inspiration to lead up and kind of give you some groundwork on where we're going to go, all right? And then uh, I'm going to talk about a few things. Let me uh, see if I can get this thing working. All right, well, let me see. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me back up, okay, there we go. Introduction, okay. This is a statement from the pen of inspiration. I'll, I'll give you the, quote, uh, the actual uh, reference in a second. Every nation that has come upon the stage of action has been permitted to occupy its place on the earth. But the fact that it might be determined whether it will fulfill its purposes of the watcher and the holy one. So every nation has a period of time of probation to determine to see whether or not they will fulfill God's will. Prophecy has traced the rise and progress of the world's great empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. With each of these, as with the nations of less power, history has repeated itself. Each has had its period of test, and each has failed. Its glory faded, its power departed. And by the way, what you're witnessing today is the departing of the glory of God in the United States of America. It's the end. You know, I, I don't care where you stand politically. That's neither here nor there with me. But I hope, that, I hope that the good Lord Jesus Christ, you're not so deluded to think that either party is going to save this country. Friends, that's like asking the uh, fox to save the chicken when the fox has been killing the chicken all along. While nations have rejected God's principles and in this rejection have wrought their own ruin, yet a divine overruling purpose has manifestly been at work throughout the ages. And that's the critical key I want you to focus on. I don't care how crazy it gets. I don't care how insane and, 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 uh, uh, the, the issues may be. God is overruling. Um, it, was, it was this that the uh, prophet Ezekiel saw in, in, in the wonderful rep, uh, presentation, representation given him during the exile of the land of the Chaldeans when before his astonished gaze were portrayed the symbols that revealed, now notice, an overruling power that has to do with the affairs of earthly rulers. Ezekiel 1.1 1, 1 is what he's talking about, the vision of Ezekiel. Chapter 1. Which, by the way, we're not going to look at that today, but I recommend you go back and study that. It is an encouraging chapter to help you understand that that is telling you, I don't care how chaotic it may get, God is still in control. Amen. Upon the banks of the river Shebar, Ezekiel beheld the whirlwind seeming to come from the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and the brightness was about it, and out of the midst thereof was the color of amber. A number of wheels intersecting one with another were moved by four living beings. High above all these was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of, a, of sapphire, a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of that, and the, uh, excuse me, and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness of the appearance of a man above it. And there appeared in the cherubims the form of a man's hand under their wings. The wheels were so complicated in arrangement that at first sight they appeared to be in confusion. Yet they moved in perfect harmony. And often that is the case when we see world events in, like Ukraine. It's, it's confusing, by the way, just as a footnote. You really don't believe. Uh, let me put it to you this way. You know the national media has an agenda. You understand that, right? So use common sense. However, however, what you need to realize, dear friends, what you need to realize that uh, 
it, it may appear to be so confusing. Everything seems to be chaotic. But remember, dear friend, out of that chaos, God's going to bring order. His divine order. Amen. Not the way the world would anticipate it. Yes. It's the way God has arranged it. Uh, uh, holy beings, sustained and guided by the hand beneath the wings of the cherubim, were impelling those wheels. So they're moving the wheels. Divine intervention, divine origin. And notice they're being guided by the hands under the wings. So here are these wings, and under the wings right are these little hands, and they're being guided by these hands. So it's telling you the essence is this, that divine agencies are involved in the, in the co complex movement of world uh, history and, and, and the interaction of human nature and, and, and uh, nations of the world itself. So God, it looks, it looks confusing, it looks crazy, and, it, and, and to some extent, obviously it is. But listen, God has everything in perfect order. Um, and then it says that we're impelling the wheels. Above them were the, uh, the sapphire stone was the eternal one. Round about the throne was a rainbow, the emblem of divine mercy. Divine mercy. Amen. As the wheel-like complications were under the guidance of the uh, hand beneath the wings of the cherubim, so the complicated play of human events is under divine control. Amidst the strife and tumult of nations, he that sits above the cherubim still guides the affairs of this earth. Amen. God is in control. The history of nations speaks to us today. To every nation and every individual, God has assigned a place in his great plan. Today, men and nations are being tested by the plummet in the hand of him who makes no mistake. All are by their own choice deciding their destiny. And God is overruling all for the accomplishment of his purposes. I love that last statement. God overrules. So mankind does this, X, Y, and Z, and God says, no. You're not going to do that. I'm going to overrule that. That's called veto power. God has veto power over the decisions of the human race. You know, I don't care what they decide they're going to do in, 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 uh, in Washington, D.C., or any other capital of, of the government of the land. Um, God has said and stated very clearly, though he has given man freedom of the will, that freedom of the will does not give them the ability to override the will of God. You understand? It doesn't work that way. And, uh, and so God will always be in control. It may, from a particular standpoint, look like things are, are, are out of control. And to a certain extent, from a human level, that's true. But from a divine perspective, everything is in perfect order. God is arranging things in such a way as to vindicate himself and preserve and protect and deliver his people. Um, the prophecies uh, which the great I Am has given in his word, uniting link after link in the chain of events from eternity to the past to eternity to the future, tell us where we are today in the pro uh, procession of the ages and what may be expected in the time to come. It's just that prophecies are so critical. You know, people, where are we in the history of this world? Well, study prophecy, Daniel, Revelation, and the other prophecies that are relative for, for today. And you'll know where we are. And I, I believe, uh, my, this is my opinion, and you're obviously free to agree or disagree, but I really believe we are in Matthew 24 where he talks about, you know, there'll be famines and pestilence and, and earthquakes and wars and nations against nation, kingdom against kingdom. I really believe that's where we are. Uh, and it's called the beginning of sorrows, which as you can only imagine how bad can it possibly get. Um, but it's going to get bad. We're in the age of the great trump. All that prophecy has foretold as coming to pass until the present time has been traced on the pages of history. And we are to be assured that all which is yet to come will be fulfilled in its order. Now, that last verse, it just needs to in its order means that God has a divine plan and it's going to go as scheduled. You understand? As he has ordered it, it's going to go precisely the way he has said uh, that's how it's going to happen. You may have freedom of the will, as I told you, but your will cannot override the sovereign will of the Almighty. And kingdoms and governments in the past have attempted to do so. 
And uh, you see, for example, classic example, Daniel chapter uh, 3, when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were threatened with death if they didn't bow to the, to the image. And uh, they respectfully yet firmly said to the king, you can do whatever you want with us. We've already committed our lives to God Almighty. Um, and uh, we're not bowing. Now, they weren't being arrogant. They weren't being boastful, but they were being firm in their faith in God. And uh, they didn't know the outcome. See, God doesn't say, I'm going to make sure you never face death. He doesn't say that. He said he'll be faithful to you even unto death. Now, that may be a possibility for some of us, perhaps all of us. I don't know. However, though, these three boys were so committed to God, they were confident no matter what happened, that uh, God would preserve them, even facing death, that somehow God would help them walk through that, that, that experience. And uh, so this is Prophets and Kings, page 535, 536. Um, so God is in control. Now keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Let's go on to the next statement. God is our strength. Now, this is going to pick up what we're going to talk about in Psalm 46, 47, and 48. But pay attention. You see, because the first statement is basically the overriding concept of what we're going to be dealing with. No matter how bad it gets. Friends, listen to me. God has a plan. Everything's going to happen exactly as he's indicated. And it'll be precisely at the time in which he's indicated. It'll be done exactly in the order in which he's stated. God will not be denied his divine sovereign right to rule heavens and the earth. You understand? No matter what earthly power tries to defy him. Toward the close of Jehoshaphat's reign in the kingdom of Judah, uh, reign, the, the kingdom of Judah was invaded by an army before whose approach the inhabitants of the land had reason to tremble. So now catch the context. Jehoshaphat, God's people, they're in trouble. They're in big trouble. And servant Lord says they had every right to be afraid because what was coming was a storm that they couldn't uh, fathom and they did not calculate the magnitude of what was going to be. So we have a crisis on our hands here, a crisis that they could not fathom. As they advanced to the battle, Jehoshaphat said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. Either you believe in God or you don't. I mean, let me tell you something, dear friends. It's easy to say now, praise the Lord, but when the crisis comes, and let me tell you, you're facing death or whatever crisis may be, then let's see whether or not you can say, praise the Lord. And let me just say something as a footnote on this regarding the New Testament, when sometimes you hear people say, well, in order to be a believer in God, to be saved in God. Just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well, you have to understand the context when it says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You've got to realize the times in which that statement was made. That God's people were being put to death if they openly professed anything regarding Jesus. So when Jesus made that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved, when that statement was made, you've got to understand that statement meant that it could cost you your life if you made an open profession of Jesus Christ. So the only people that are actually going to do that are people who actually love God. Because they're going to say, we don't care. We're not, we're not going to stop loving our Lord. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that separates, as we say, the men from the boys. And uh, so uh, he says, believe and you shall be established. Believe his prophets so she prosper. And when he had consulted with the people... He appointed singers unto the Lord, and that they should praise the, uh, 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 the beauty of holiness. This is very interesting. So he sits in, he has a consultation, says, what do you think? I mean, these are, this is a powerful army here. We got, we got trouble on our hands. I don't know if we're going to be able to take this one, because this is bigger than we anticipated. And they were afraid. So obviously, in this consultation, clearly someone recommended, well, listen, what we first got to do is get the choir at, to, uh, together. And we got to send them out in front and get them to sing praises to God Almighty. Now, in terms of battle tacticians, you know, that's not a great strategy. That's not the kind of strategy you want to hear from your commanding officer. You know, imagine at the Battle of the Bulge, 
commanding officer says, how are we going to, the Germans are encircling, they're coming in like a, like a tsunami. They're barely going to be able to survive. They don't know if they're going to be able to win this battle. And the general command, well, don't worry about Patton. We don't need him. Let's get the choir. We'll send the boys out in front. We'll let them sing. Now, what does that mean? What is he saying? Look, dear friends, when the Bible talks about singing praises to God, it indicates that you believe that even though that what you're facing is traumatic and uncertain, yet you have enough faith to believe that God is still in control, so much so that you're going to give him glory, even though you can't see the victory, you believe he has the victory already won. You understand? So you're going to praise him. This is called faith. That's why they sent the singers out in front, was to encourage the people, to strengthen them. These singers went before the army, lifting their voices in praise to God for the promise of victory. It was a singular way of going to battle against the enemy's army, praising the Lord with singing and exalting the God of Israel. This was their battle song. They possessed the beauty of holiness. It was more praising of God, uh, excuse me, if more praising of God were encouraged and now, hope and courage and faith would steadily increase. And would not this strengthen the hands of the valiant soldiers who are today standing in defense of truth? Wouldn't it encourage you? Talk more, you know, build up your faith? Sure, that's what you need. You know, you don't need people to constantly remind you, you know, of uh, things that are bad when you already know they're bad. You only address the issues that are bad in order to encourage the saints to realize no matter what they, you, you may be facing, God is going to take care of you if you trust him. If you, as he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe in God, if you believe in the prophets. And the reason why he says believe in the Lord, you be established, believe in God, uh, the prophets, you be established. He says the reason the prophets, because the prophets are, are the ones who God used to, what, convey the, the promises of, of, faith, uh, of all that God said he would do for you. So basically he's saying, look, believe in God and believe in his promises as were given to us by the prophets. Um God was the strength of Judah in this crisis, and he is the strength of his people today. We are not to trust in princes, nor in set of men, in the place of God. Amen. And that includes Democrats and the Republicans. Amen. Amen. Man, people, look, I mean, say whatever you want. I don't really care. You know, Donald Trump keeps telling us one day he's going to bring back America greater than it's ever been before. Now, I don't whether you like him or not, that's none of my business. I don't care. And whether you voted for him or not, again, I don't care. However, however, never in the history of recorded man uh, of recorded uh, uh, the history of mankind has there ever been a nation that has fallen to the degree in which it, we are in now ever gone back better than when it first started. It's, you, you don't find one country in the history of recorded mankind, not one, that we were greater than before. And so uh, now I understand, you know, he says he's not a politician, but I'm sorry to tell you, if he wasn't when he started, he is now. Uh, let's see. Uh, we are to remember... We are to remember that human beings are fallible and erring and that he who has all power is our strong tower of defense or that tower, that strong castle or fortification, the strong fortification of our defense. In every emergency, we are to feel that the battle is his. That's a key thing. Stop fighting. You know, it's like a soldier. He's been given a position. All right, listen, I want you to occupy the, the hill on the right over there. Would you please take your boys and occupy it? That's like now me. A bunch of soldiers coming to buy and said, I'm going to take over. I'm going to take over. Listen, when God is in control and he then assigns you a position, occupy the position that he has assigned you and stop, first and foremost, worrying about where God has assigned other people. And number two, stop doing God's part. 
Because you can't win. Only God can win. And so you got to remember, dear friends, God is our defense. The battle is His. It's not yours. Friends, they're waging war against us because of who we represent. His resources are limitless. And apparent impossibilities will make the victory all the greater. This is something we can never surmount. There's no way we can climb that mountain. But by the grace of God, we can achieve that objective. And when we do, the victory will be all the more the greater. In obedience to the command, stand ye still and see the salvation of the Lord. Fear not, nor be dismayed. They had put their trust wholly in God. And he had proved to be their fortress and their deliverer. Second Chronicles 20:17. Now listen very carefully. Listen very carefully. Now they could sing with understanding the inspired hymns of David. She then quotes Psalm 46 and then Psalm 48, 8 to 10, or uh, 10 to 14, excuse me. Now notice the Psalms. Notice the Psalms, 46 and 48. And there's a reason being, because these Psalms were recorded by David when he had been facing great odds that were against him. And David recorded what God did for him. Psalm 46, 47, and 48 must be read together. Now, let's look at this. Watch this. This is going to talk about the last days, just before the deliverance of God's people. Watch this now. When the protection of human laws shall be withdrawn from those who honor the law of God, there will be in different lands uh, a simultaneous movement for their destruction. As the time appointed by the decree draws near, near, the people will conspire to root out the hated sect. It will be determined to strike in one night a decisive blow, which shall utterly silence the voice of dissent and reproof. The people of God, some in prison cells, some hidden in solitary retreats in the forest and in the mountains, still plead for divine protection. While in every quarter, companies of armed men, urged on by the host of, uh, by hosts of evil angels, are preparing for the work of death. It is now in the hour of the utmost extremity that God of Israel will interpose for the deliverance of his, of his chosen. Saith the Lord, now listen, saith the Lord, you shall have a song. In the day when you think, that's it, I'm done. Death is coming. Utter ruin, annihilation. God says, in that day, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to give you a song. Now remember, why did Jehoshaphat send the singers in first? He sent them above, in front of the army. Was to encourage them and strengthen them and to remind them, this battle belongs to God. It's not yours. He will fight it. He just wants you to play a part and having the faith to believe that what God has promised, he will do. And so God says, I'm going to give you a song. You want to know what that song is? You ready? Brace yourself. Watch this. Their voices... Rise in triumphant song. Now notice, God is our refuge and strength, a present help in trouble. Therefore, we'll not, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed, and, the, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, and though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Psalm 46, 1 to 3. Great Conifers speak 535, 538. Oh, 3538. Listen very carefully. Notice the psalm. What's, that's the song of deliverance, triumph. That's the song of victory. Listen to me. What psalm? Psalm 46. Where do we read that from? We just read that before in the previous statement. What happened to Jehoshaphat? It says now they could sing that song. And they did, by the way. They sung, uh, sung Psalm 46 and, and parts of 48 when they had been given that victory. God gave them a song. Now listen. I want to show you something. I want to summarize these, these psalms. All right? Remember, now, please stick around this afternoon, would you? Please. I know, unless you've got Bible studies or some other important things. Other than that, dear friends, going home and sitting around and doing nothing is uh, not an excuse. Um, l- listen, uh, Luther's, listen, a, a summary. Let's go to the summary. Psalms 46 to 48 are this, uh, the same in subject and character. They express the confidence of God's people in the, promise, in the presence of and protection of God at the time of eminent and bearable danger. 
These psalms were an encouragement to the Protestant Reformation. They brought comfort to the church when it needed it most. They strengthened the resolve of God's people to press the battle to the gate of the enemy. Psalm 46 is the psalm that inspired Martin Luther to write the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It became known as the battle hymn of the Reformation. And let me tell you something, dear friends. When you sing that, that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that's based on Psalm 46. And Luther wrote that, that, that hymn, he wrote that hymn in 1529. At the Diet of where that's where the name Protestant was born. And Protestantism came forth. And the act of protesting against the abuses and, and the atrocities uh, that were being committed against God's people. Now, <clears throat> this is a breakdown of the three psalms. Psalm 46, known as Luther's psalm. God is our fortress. That's the essence of that psalm. God is our fortress. And the essence is that because he's our fortress, he would be the overthrow of the enemy. Psalm 47 is the psalm of celebration, the triumph of God's glory. In Psalm 48, the psalm, it's known as the psalm of deliverance. It talks about the beauty, the security, the splendor of the city of God, his church. And Psalm 48 is another magnificent, sadly, I don't think we're going to get through that, um, sadly to say. But uh, that's where we are now. All right, listen. Let's um, see if I can't. All right. Let's look at some historical remarks. This comes from Great Text of the Bible by James Hastings, page 404, 1910 edition. It says, Martin Luther, in the darkest times, used to say to Melanchthon, his fellow laborer in the Reformation, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let them do their worst. So whenever Luther was in a, in, in a terrible situation, he would go to his friend Melanchthon and say, Come on. Let's sing Psalm 46 and let, let them do, or meaning the enemy of God's, let them do what they will. Let them do their worst. God is in control. And so Luther and the Protestants relied heavily on these psalms. Heavily on these psalms. This uh, next statement comes from Lyrica Germanica, meaning the lyrics, of, the history of German lyrics, hymns. Uh, page 149, 1865 edition. The poor Protestant immigrants of Salzburg and other parts of Austria would often sing this hymn on their way to exile. And the Huguenots did the same in France in the time of their bloody persecutions between 1560 and 1572. Yea, many of them died joyfully as martyrs with this hymn on their lips. As they were dying, they're singing, A mighty fortress is our God. That's how important that hymn became to the Protestants. This statement actually comes from Oliver Cromwell. Um, it was an, a, a speech in Parliament. Um, um, you have to forgive me when you get transfer these things. Sometimes they don't transfer over with the right kind of type. I didn't, I didn't put that in small print, the name of God. Believe me, you can better well believe that one. Oliver Cromwell said in 1656, he said this while he was uh, uh, protector of uh, England. He says, uh, uh, therefore, I beseech you in the name of God, set your hearts to do this work, to make God's will be, uh, uh, done on earth and first of all in England. So in other words, make that your first work. Let's do God's will. Let's do God's will. And then he says, this, he says and, and if you set your hearts to, uh, to it, then you will sing Luther's psalm. This is a rare psalm for a Christian. And if he set his heart open and can approve it to God, we shall hear him say, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. If Pope and Spaniard and devil and all set themselves against us, though they should be like, compass us like the bees, as is stated in Psalm 118, yet in the name of the Lord we shall destroy them all. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And that was what Oliver Cromwell stated in a speech to Parliament encouraging the saints to do the right thing and to rely heavily on Psalm 46 in order to encourage them along the way. This is just a freebie, but I want you to remember this one. This comes from The Delayed Victory by F.H. Dude, uh, there on page 26, 1918. When, Cardinal, when the Cardinal Legate of Rome had uh, an interview with Luther at Augsburg, uh, he said to him furiously, the Pope's little finger is stronger than all of Germany. Do you expect the princes to take up arms and defend you? I tell you, no. 
And where will you be then? Where will you be then? Luther answered, where I am now, in the hands of Almighty God. Now that you better remember. Because that's the essence of Psalm 46, 47, and 48. It's to remind you, God is going to take care of you. If you have faith to believe and do what God requires of you. All right, let's keep going on. All right, this is analysis now of Psalm 46. Now we're going to begin the process. And, and uh, so please pay attention. Psalm 46. This is a breakdown of the psalm. It's not a big psalm. It's a small one. It's only 11 verses. Verses 1 to 3 state, Though all things should be removed, we will not fear, for God is our refuge and strength. Doesn't matter how bad things be become, how chaotic they may be. Listen, take courage. God is our refuge. He's our strength. He will help us. Okay? Verses 4 to 7. There is a peace and calmness that, that God provides for his church. For he is in the midst of her, and he will speedily and at the right time help her. Just when you need him most, that's when he's coming. You understand? All right, so that's what that's talking about. And then verses 8 to 11, consider the power of God. Cease from your anxiety and know that, God, that he alone is God, for the Lord is with us. Stop your worrying. Stop your worrying. Stop your anxiety. There's no need for you to worry. You only worry when you know that things can't turn out the way you want. In the final analysis, dear friends, just because we don't know the end from the beginning doesn't mean God doesn't have everything under control. He does. He does. So we've got to stop our worrying. Talk, talk of faith. Talk of courage. You know, build up your faith. Build it up. All right? Now, I'm going to do... Uh, what is known as a, what I, an expository translation of Psalm 46. Okay, you know what an expository, tra what's, when you expound on something? Yes. You're elaborating. Yes. So this is my translation. It's not yours, it's mine. And uh, I'm not saying it's perfect, but I am saying that the very essence of what's being captured there is truthful. So this is what we're going to use, all right? Follow me in, your, in the King James Bible. But we're going to read from my expository translation, all right? And, uh, and uh, I think you'll, you'll really appreciate this, all right? So let's now investigate this psalm. By the way, somebody's got to make sure. Hang on one second. I'll find out right now where we are on time. Oh, we're doing good. All right, let's begin, shall we? Now we're going to investigate this subject. This is verse 1. Others may rely on armies or even boast of their impregnable fortress to save them. But to those of us who love God, he alone is our refuge and strength. And we who put our faith in God alone have found that he is ever ready and sufficient to help us in times of trouble. That's the essence of verse 1. You see? See, the King James says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. But the way it starts off in the King James, it's very abrupt. God is our refuge and strength. There's a prelude to that. Meaning, you see, he's saying God is our refuge and strength, implying others, others rely on other things. Yes. You see, they, they rely on this and that and whatever you want, money, power, you know, guns. What, they rely on, no, we, we, yes. no, we rely on God. Yes. You see, so there's a contrast. This statement doesn't, see, it doesn't give you the first part. It only gives you the second part. But the second part, by implication of the statement, clearly indicates there's something that should go before it. God is our strength. God is our refuge. So that implies other people don't believe what we believe. So they don't make God their strength and their refuge. So that's why I, the expository translation is translated that way. Okay? Just to give you a little insight. All right? Verse 2. Therefore we shall not fear... Even though the very foundations of society should undergo a series of convulsions and be changed, and even though the stability of everything alive should be violently overthrown and hurled into the midst of the seas. You see, what you've got to look at Psalm 46 and look at it, it says, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth be, be, be moved and, and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. The earth is the foundation of, uh, that we stand on. Take the earth away, we just, I don't know, float in space, I don't know where we go. So the earth is a metaphor for the foundations of society, the foundations of life. 
When the foundations of society crumble before your very eyes, and you see things go crazy, convulsions and revolutions and every other thing in society going crazy, listen, God's still in control. He's still in control. And then notice, as though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. The mountain rests where? On the earth. But now, the foundations of the mountain are being ripped out from underneath it and cast into the sea. What does seas represent in Bible prophecy? Well, you hang on. That's true, but not always. Seas also represent instability. What did God say to Reuben? says you're like unstable like water. So remember, the mountains are removed, plucked up from the earth. The earth is the foundation of the mountain. So the mountains no longer have a foundation. They're cast into the sea, meaning a mountain is a symbol of, of power and strength. It can also represent kingdoms. It can also represent governments and so forth. But it also represents everything that is stable in life, the foundations of society itself, when it's removed underneath, everything that you've built hope upon in terms of resting that society on, is cast into the sea of instability. It now becomes unstable. And guess what? That's where we are now. As I said to you before, we've got people believing that they don't even know what a man is or a woman is anymore. They asked the Supreme Court justice, the one that just got put in Jackson. I mean, they asked her a direct question. What's a woman? I'm not a biologist. <laughs> you mean to tell me you got to be a bi- Listen, I'm not an engineer, but I know, I know what a car is. So what are we supposed to do now? Doctors, you know, you know work in the delivery room, you know, and the parents don't want to know what, what the child is, male or female. They want, they want to wait, be surprised. And a lot of people still do that, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. So the doctor comes and baby's delivered, and the mother's fine. Well, what is it? What is it? How do I know? <laughs> uh, who? I don't know. No idea. What, what is the doctor supposed to say? Well, I just have to wait for the child to grow up to decide for himself. That's how perverse we are today. That's how perverse. And, uh, you know, I don't know. It's crazy. So you see, that's why I, it's expository this way. So look, it goes on, verse 3. And even if the people should be in a state of revolution and, tr- and trouble regarding those things that are coming on the earth, and even though the kingdoms of church and state should shake with the uncertainty as a result of these things, we shall not fear, for our God alone shall be our defense and savior. Now that word Sheila, that last thing, actually it's a musical term. It actually means pause and rest. So it's a musical term used in, it means just pause, take a rest. But in terms of how we translate that for our understanding today, when the Bible uses Sheila, it really actually means stop and consider what you've just read. Think about what you've just read. There's a deliberate pause. So there's a break from three, verse three to verse four. So One, two, and three go together. And so he's saying, look, I want you to contemplate and consider what you just read. And so what do you have? The essence of these three verses is that everything in society is being being thrown out of whack. The world is turned upside down. What we once thought was stable, you know, grounded on the foundation of something that is firm and true, that we've always relied on, is now no longer reliable. It's because it's cast into the sea of uncertainty. You say, it's, it's, it's no longer stable. And that's where we are today. Now, so everything is in chaos in verses 1 to 3. But it's interesting how the, psalm, uh, the psalmist David started that psalm. Notice, he says, notice, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He starts off with words of encouragement. Immediately trying to help you to realize that God is our strength. From this point forward, he's going to tell you things are crazy. Things are insane. Things are getting out of hand. Everything in society and in this world is turned upside down. Now, look at verse 4. In the King James, it says this, and there is a river of streams who shall make glad the city of God. Now, it talks about the waters in verse 3 and verse 2. So you have the waters and the seas both mentioned in verses 2 and 3. 
And notice the condition of the waters. Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled. You see? And though the mountains shall shake with the swelling thereof. In other words, the mountains are actually quaking, shaking as a result of the turbulent seas. How turbulent do the oceans have to get for mountains to actually shake? Listen, you're going to need a tsunami that's probably several thousand feet in the air to actually shake a mountain. How turbulent do these waters have to get for mountains to shake? Very, very turbulent. And he's saying society is going to become so turbulent that everything in life that you thought was a foundation that was so strong is going to be shaken, shaken, and shaken. So the waters are indicating complete trouble, chaos. But look what he says. There is a river. The streams thereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Now, it's missing a first part again. It should be stated this way. Let me read it to you. However, now remember, we got troubles, tribulation, seas are just chaotic. However, however... There is a calm river from which proceeds the blessings of God, uh, from the blessings of God flow. Its gentle flowing streams shall make glad the city of God, his beloved church. God's church is the holy place where the Most High loves to tabernacle. That's what he's telling you in verse 4. No matter, look, he's saying, look how bad things are. The rivers are shaking, the, re- the seas are turbulent, so much so the mountains are moving. However, there is a calm river that flows from God. It's called the blessings of God. And God, God loves to dwell with his church. The tabernacle, he loves to dwell with us. Verse 5 says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall speedily help her, and at the right time. It will be as the breaking of the dawn. And so God will immediately come and deliver you at the right moment of time, like the breaking of the dawn. And the moment of the breaking of the dawn, when is the darkest moment? It's just before the dawn. Right? Just before the the dawn is the darkest moment. And just when you think there's no hope, there's no way, boom, here comes deliverance. And what happens? The greater uh, uh, the, the deliverance, the greater of the rejoicing. Amen. God's going to bring us to the precipice. Right to the precipice. And just when you think, that's it, it's over, the Almighty steps in. Now, by the way, he hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. He's led you all the way. But he's trying to build your faith. And deliverance comes at the right time. Then he goes on to verse 6. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved against God and his church. He uttered his voice, and the earth melted before him. None shall stand before him, for he alone is to be exalted. The heathen, the wicked, they're, they're, now they're, engaged, they're enraged at God's church. They're, they're vehemently against him and hate him and his people. But God will utter his, vo- uh, his voice. And the earth shall melt before him. When God speaks his promises, friends, I don't care how vicious they may get, God will make them simply melt away. Simply melt away. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is his name. He alone is sovereign over all that is in heaven and earth. It is he who is with us, the God of Jacob, who guided, protected, and delivered Jacob from the threats of Esau. He is our refuge. And that's the interesting part. I want to go to verse 7 in a second. Sheila, again, stop and consider these things. Look with me in Psalm 46, verse 7 from the King James. This is how it says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Now, it's very interesting the way it's it's stated. It says here, the Lord of hosts. And then it talks about the God of Jacob. Two different titles used in reference to God, but in relation to his people. The first part talks about the Lord of hosts. Lord, he's sovereign, meaning the only one who is sovereign. Of the, of the host. host. Host represents all that is in heaven and on earth. It's everything in life itself. All, everything. All that's in heaven, all that's in earth, 
God is Lord of it all. Which means, dear friends, that's another way, it's a code. It's a code that God is using. It's another way of saying God is in control of everything. Nothing can escape God. Nothing. He's Lord of it all. The subjects are not Lord of God. And so the Lord of hosts, notice what he says, the God who is ruler over everything, he's with us. Man, I'm going to tell you something right now. That's, that's, a, that's encouraging. Then he says, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Well, that, the God, why do you use Jacob? He could use a lot of other people. Because the parallel here, Jacob was delivered from Esau. Jacob thought Esau was going to come and kill him, and, and rightly so. He was threatened by that, and, and, and I don't blame him. However, dear friends, you've got to see what God did for Jacob. You've got to go to Genesis 32 and 33 to read the story and, and start to understand what it is that God was going to do for him. But before he was delivered, there was a night of wrestling. He had to wrestle with God. And it was at that point when he overcame and God delivered uh, Jacob from Esau. And, uh, and you see, dear friends, why does he say he, the God of Jacob is our refuge? Just as God rescued and delivered and preserved Jacob at the moment what he thought was death itself, God stepped in and said, no, I'm not going to let that happen. And so God of Jacob is our refuge. He's the place that we can go to and find shelter and protection. <clears throat> Then come to verse 8. He says, Come, consider the works of the Lord. What desolations he has made in the earth. Consider what it is that God has done in the past regarding the nature of the things that have confronted his church. He has brought them to naught. He has absolutely brought them to naught. And so he's telling you to reflect. Go back and reflect on the glorious things that God has done for his church. Go back and study your history in your Bible and, and in history uh, books that deal with the accounts of how the Protestants were persecuted and tortured and in many ways de uh, delivered, such as the case of Martin Luther and others, go back and study what, see what God did. Look at the wonderful works that he has performed. It says he makes wars to cease unto the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear asunder. He burns the chariot in the fire. Nothing shall stand in his way, for God, he alone is God. That's the whole point, dear friends. No matter what they may surmount against us. God can bring all of these things to naught. He can just simply wipe them away. He's done it in the past. What about the Egyptian army? What about that? That was a powerful army. Well, they were going to slaughter God's people. But he wiped them all out. He destroyed them all. When he is finished with his work on the earth, he shall bring lasting peace to his people. And then, 10 and 11. So, so be still. So, should put a comma. Be still and don't be anxious. Stop your worrying and know by experience that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. In the final analysis, dear friends, God is going to be exalted. He's not going to be denied his rightful place. So he's saying, so stop your worrying. That's what it means in the King James. It says, it says, be still. Verse 10, be still. But that's archaic. You know, be still. Do I just stand there? What he's telling you is, stop your worrying. Stop your anxiety. Stop all those fears you have. Stop it. Stop your complaining. And, and experience who God is. Stop your worrying. Verse 11 says, the Lord of all that is in heaven and earth is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Now, in verse 11, he repeats the same thing he says in verse 7. This is very interesting. You know, once you state something, you would think it would be sufficient. You don't need to restate your case. However, though, he does it twice. And it's a short psalm. It's only 11 verses. I mean, you think somebody would forget something that's only got 11 verses? But he states it twice. So of the... Eleven, two of them say the exact same thing. So what is he trying to tell you? He's, that's, that's, he's reminding you. He's trying to encourage you. He's trying to tell you that 
the Lord of hosts, the one who rules all of heaven and earth, the sovereign one, the most high, he is with us. He's with us. You know, if you were to get into a fight, a physical brawl, and you knew the person you were about to face could clearly, I mean, beat your brains in. And yet someone came by and, and, uh, and uh, was much bigger, much stronger, more powerful, and could beat the brains of your opponent and said, don't worry, I'm going to take care of everything, and then proceeds to annihilate your opponent. You know, you're not going to be worried, are you? Why should you be? Because somebody else is going to fight that battle who's more fierce, more determined, who will not be denied the victory. And God is trying to remind you, David is telling you, that the God who rules everything, he is with us. Which means no matter what they may try to throw up against God's church, God will defend his people. Amen. He will protect them. And again, the God of Jacob, the God who delivered Esau, or excuse me, delivered Jacob from Esau, the God who protected him, encouraged him, strengthened him. As I said, there was a night of wrestling. He had to go through it. He had to experience. And it wasn't until he, he, was, he fell helplessly upon the breast of Jesus Christ and, then, and, and, and leaned wholly upon him that he had the victory. And that's a, another critical moment. You've got to realize what, what it really means. Many people aren't wrestling in their faith. You're just floating by day to day, week after week, month after month. You're just floating through Christianity. You don't, you don't know what it means to wrestle with God. And wrestling with God, dear friends, is, is a very personal, intimate thing. Nobody can wrestle for you. You've got to fight those battles yourself. And it has to do with really reflecting in your life. You know, are you really a Christian? I mean, are you really a Christian? Now you can sing a hymn, but an atheist can sing a hymn, right? Uh, I pay my tithes. <laughs> an atheist can pay tithes. I go to church on Saturday, a Sabbath. An atheist can go to church on a Saturday, on Saturday, uh, Sabbath. But an atheist can't give his heart to God. In other words, he, he doesn't believe in God. You see? It's not that he can't. He, he just won't. Look, dear friends, there needs to be a night of wrestling. And if, I'm going to tell you this, though. Had Jacob not persevered, and that's the critical thing, had he not persevered, he would not have overcome, and Esau would have gained the victory over him. But Jacob understood that he had to de be determined to persevere in the fight to overcome the defects in his character. You and I are all... Uh, um, People who have sinned against God. We've all sinned against the Almighty. We've all come short of His glory. We're all in the same boat. You understand that, right? We're all in the same boat. No one's better than the next person. Your sins aren't any, you know, any worse or better than mine. Right? Oh, we, it's amazing how we act on a human level. Wow, person did this, he did that. Yet you don't think of anything like that when it comes to lying, cheating, or stealing. And yet in the eyes of God, a sin is a sin. So stop acting like somehow, you know, that's bad. And well, mine aren't that bad. As if somehow that, you know, you know that, uh, God's going to whitewash it. That's not, no, there's not three categories. It's either sin or righteousness. And, uh, and friends, let me tell you, um, we need to be reminded of these things. There is a God in heaven who loves us and is going to do all that he can to encourage us and strengthen us. Psalm 46 is all about, even though troublous times are upon us, God is our refuge, he is our strength, and he will deliver us at the right time. He will be our protector, our defender. It's a, a psalm of encouragement. Now, Psalm 47, though, Psalm 47 carries on. It continues what is stated in Psalm 46 as 48 continues what is stated in Psalm 47. So in our next meeting, because let me make sure I get this right, yes. 
Psalm 46. I'll tell you what, I'll do a little analysis of 47, and then we'll close it here. Listen very carefully. This is a psalm where God celebrates his glorious victory over the wicked. And uh, this is how it's broken down. Now, this psalm is only broken it's, it's in two parts. It's divided into two sections, verses 1 to 4 and then 5 to 9. But the first section is divided into two parts, verses 1 and 2 and then 3 and 4. So the first part of the psalm in verses 1 to 4 is praise that is due to God. God deserves to be praised. He deserves to be praised. The reason we don't praise him uh, to the degree in which we should, uh, or as often as we should, is the reason because we don't really believe. You know, if you, if you hit the lot, let's, let's say you, you, delivered, you, you were delivered a, a mail uh, in, in the, in the, uh, at home, and it's a check for a quarter of a, 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 a billion dollars. Now, don't tell me you're going to sit there and throw your hands up in frustration and say, why me? How could this have happened to me? I can't believe. I mean, uh, you're going to be ecstatic. You're, you're, not going to, you're going to think this is a joke. You're going to be praying. I absolutely. The first thing you think, well, I'm getting a new house, getting out of this neighborhood, that's for sure. <laughs> and on and on. You go through the litany of the list of things that you want in life. The reason we don't praise God is because we don't believe we won the lottery. That's why. And if we do sing a hymn, we're half, we're lifeless, drudged in. All blessings to God Almighty. Amen. Praise the Lord. I mean, it's unbelievable how some people sing a hymn. Now, I'm not asking you to be uh, flamboyant and, uh, you know, over the top and be foolish and silly. But if you're going to praise Him, praise Him. So. Praise that is due to God. Verses 1 and 2 deal with God is to be revered, for he is king. Therefore, rejoice and proclaim to God with the voice of victory. In other words, why do we sing praises? Because he is God. Because he is Lord. He is king. That's why. Because in other words, we know we got someone in our, in, in, in our corner who's going to beat Satan, our opponent, to a pulp. Praise him. He's going to win this battle. The church will be triumphant. Now, will we have to go through a night of wrestling? Yes. Yes. But persevere. Hold on. That's the whole point. Persevere. Hold on. Then verses 3 and 4, David anticipates the glorious thing that, which God, uh, that God will do for his people. And verses, so David is now anticipating so he says, I praise you, God, you're king, you're going. And then he says, with anticipation, this is what you're going to do for us. And he's going to do mighty things. And then the second part of the psalm, verses 5 to 9, after God accomplishes his will on the earth, he ascends to heaven and sits upon his throne triumphantly. You see? He sits there gloriously. That's Psalm 46. So when we come back this afternoon, we're going to go to 46. Uh, 47, excuse me, I apologize. And then uh, hopefully, if we've got time, I'm going to go through 48. Okay? Amen. So we're going to give you an analysis and then an expository. Listen, there's a God in heaven who uh, loves us dearly and is doing everything he can to encourage us in our faith. Um, and I pray to good, good Lord that you will be um, determined to follow him wherever he leads. Let us pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you. Please bless us and keep us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you will guide us and help us and to trust you wholly. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn, Stand Stand up, stand up for Jesus. It's hymn 618 in your hymnal. And shall we stand and sing? 618.
again, Father, we thank you. Please bless us and keep us. Help us each one, dear Lord, I pray, to find our, our relationship with you closer and more vibrant than ever before. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.